Tonight we're going to talk about the Bible, and I love the Bible. I love it, I love it, I love it. For, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by a pastor who just happens to have his rabbi training as well, so all my stuff comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I'm qualified to sort your head out, so be careful what you say to me, because I can, I can see through it, right? Now, um, um, on your way out tonight after the Q&A, there's a giant table uh, with all of our resources. If you walk out there and can't find it, seek medical help. It's taken up half the foyer. And, and, if, and, if, and if you walk out there and you think, why would you carry all that around with you? Well, the reason is, is because we make a lot of money from it, right? And, and, and the reason we do that is because we live with the conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die, that we're called to do something more profound than that, and that is to say yes to the infinite possibilities that Jesus has for our life here now, today, to bring heaven here. And so 100% of what we make from that, we give away to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after mentally handicapped kids. We also have a rescue in Cape Town yeah, that gets girls out of sex trafficking. And so um, we, we give on the first of the month, we give, and then we believe God for the month to make that up. And, um, and if it goes over that, we'll give extra. Uh, if it doesn't, we just eat it. So uh, you can um, afterwards come avail yourself. Everything's available in four formats, CD, DVD, USB, and direct download. Okay, so I can make it appear on your phone. We can do whatever um, we need to do out there and just know uh, that you're helping us, you know, support something. Now, I, I get the feeling that this church has a real chatting culture, which I'm really happy about. Um, but but and you should do that. But, and if you know, I'm not going to get anything. God bless you. I'll see you next time. Um, but if you know before I leave tonight, I'm going to get something. If you would do me a favor and buy first and chat second, that would be awesome. Because, see, i got, I got to tear it down and take it to Bay City with me. So that would be great if we could, if we could work together that way. Now, a, a couple things. Um, we're going to talk about the Bible. So I'm coming tonight as a teacher, not an evangelist. And that's really, really good because I'm not a very good evangelist, right? But it's Tuesday night and you're in church. I'm assuming we're all followers of Jesus, right? I don't need to beat that drum. Okay, good. Because I want to talk to you about the Bible, and I'm assuming I'm talking to people who love it. So let's make a few affirmations here. First, hello, my name is Shane, and I love the Bible. I love it. That should be obvious. I've given my whole life to studying it. I've given my whole life to studying it in such a way that I can communicate it in very compelling ways. I've given my whole life to, to explore the infinite meanings of some of these incredible passages and what they mean for us today. And so because of that, it grieves me when I see the Bible being destroyed. And, and it's our fault. Um, and here's why it's our fault. The people in this room are the people who control the narrative around the Bible. So when the people who control the narrative are speaking about it in such a way that destroys it for an entire generation under 30... It's very, very grieving. And so there's a better way. There's a better way to do this. That anytime I teach, I want Jesus to get bigger, right? So if you walk out of here tonight, and because of something I said, Jesus is smaller, I failed. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. So if you walk out of here tonight and you go, man, the cross didn't work as good as I thought, then I failed, right? I want, when you walk out of here tonight, I want Jesus to be bigger than you, than you thought when you walked in. I want the cross to work better than you thought when, it, when you walked in. I, I want the resurrection to be central. I want Scripture to be bigger, not smaller. So if you walk out of here tonight with less questions about the Bible, instead of more questions, I'll be disappointed in that, right? I want us to discuss great teaching is not meant to be agreed with. It did the church great harm when we started defining sermons 
by whether or not we agree with them or not. Sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. Declarations are. So if I was to say, Jesus loves you, that's meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. But when we explore the meaning of a text, it's not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. It's meant to be wrestled with. It's meant to be explored. It's meant to be discussed over coffee. It's meant to be bounced off of one another. And so that's what I hope to do tonight in, in one of the more compelling ways. I hope to, to give us this. This tonight is, is for those of you who have children who are coming into their 20s and you're scared to death of them going to university. It, 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 this is for you. If you're under the age of 30, this is for you. I want to talk to you about the Bible in a way that's compelling. I, I, want, to, I, want, to, I want you to fall in love with it. And, and if, you're, if you're 70 and you're like, I already love the Bible, great. I want you to fall more in love with it, right? And so so let's, let's start with a few um, affirmations that should be obvious, but I find that making these affirmations at the start keeps anonymous Facebook posts from coming up about you. This is really good, right? So first, the Bible's fully inspired I believe that, you believe that, your pastor believes that, your movement believes that, your denomination believes that. The Bible's fully inspired. Everybody in this room is on the same page with that. I love it, it's inspired. You love it, it's inspired. We're all on the same team with that. And I'll even go so far to say this, because this is really important to some people, not as important to others, but that the Bible is inerrant as long as it's properly interpreted within the genre it was written in. If, if the original author intended it to be a poem and you interpret it as literal history, you can't possibly get inerrancy that way. It's impossible. If the original author intended for it, for it to be a poem and you interpret it as a history book or, or a science book, which would be even worse, it's, it's no way you could come to that. If, if, if you interpret a proverb as, as, a, as a command, it's, it's, it's that you can't. You can't genre confuse like that. It just, it just doesn't work. So is the Bible inspired? Yes. Or, or is, 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 is the Bible inerrant? Sure. I guess as long as it's properly interpreted within the genre it was written in. If I was to take you to Israel and you ask the history guide, please take me to the farm where the parable of the prodigal son happened. They, what are you talking about? It's a, it's a made-up story. You can't, it, 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 like, what? What are you what? This was a parable. You can't go to the actual place. So, so, it's, so, you, so we, can't, we can't genre confuse. Now, is the Bible inspired? Yes. But let's talk about what inspiration is and what inspiration is definitely not. Okay, let's, let's talk about that. So in, the word inspiration is, comes from the Latin word spire, means to breathe. So all forms of that word in English have something to do with breath, like respiration, right, to Breathe in and out. It, medically, if something falls in my lungs and I cannot breathe, now I'm aspirating, right? So it's, it's, it's that. So to inspire means to put breath into something. To expire means to remove breath from something. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, they didn't say he died. They said he expired. It was so primitive. It was literally Hey, Billy, did you see that? He breathed out and didn't breathe in again. That was something special right there. He just, he lost his breath. That is, ex, he has expired, right? It was, it was that, if you'll just excuse my Alabama accent there. So it's, it's expiration. So let, let's talk about what inspiration is not. Even though the Bible is inspired, let's talk about what it's not. Inspiration does not mean God wrote it. Like, if you want to ruin the Bible, here's all you got to do. Speak of it like God wrote it. So all you got to do, well, God wrote that. No, no, he didn't. No, and if he did, which part? 
Which part exactly did he write? The love your neighbor as yourself part? That's pretty good. Right? Right? To do unto others as you would have them do unto you? That's a good one. Or did he write the part in Exodus 21 that says, if you need to beat a slave for laziness, that's fine, so long as it takes him longer than a day to die from the beating. But if he dies within a day, now that's murder right there. That part. <laughs> what about the part in Deuteronomy 21 that says it's okay to take foreign virgin girls captive and force them to marry foreign warriors? That one. Or what about Deuteronomy 23 that says no Moabite will ever be welcomed by God? Turns out Ruth was welcome. David's one-fourth Moabite. Jesus is one-twenty-eighth Moabite, turns out. Or what about the six verses in the Old Testament that say all Sidonites will be cursed forever? And Jesus turns up and blesses a Sidonite, and they want to throw him off a cliff because he was being unbiblical. <laughs> that part. Or what about the part in Ecclesiastes 3 that says there's no such thing as heaven or hell. When we die, we just go, go, all go back to dirt like dogs. That, that one. Or, or what about the part that says all women should shut their mouths in church? <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> or, or what about the part that says it's an abomination for any woman to enter into a sanctuary of the Lord without a covering on her head? I only see one in the whole house. And it's got shiny letters. I don't even know if that counts. Now... If you, if, if you want to ruin the Bible, speak of it in static terms like that, like God wrote it. God wrote it, right? Or, so, so inspiration is not God, God writing it, nor is inspiration God dictating it. Like the idea that God was in heaven going, and Moses is like, okay, that sounds crazy, but if you need to be the slave for laziness, I guess that's okay, right? Right, like, come on, Inspiration does not mean God wrote it, nor does it mean God dictated it. Inspiration just simply means a man wrote something. God wanted to give it life. And how does God give something life? He breathes on it. Well, in the Bible, what's the first thing in the whole Bible God breathed on? Dirt. And what happened? Us, right? Like, we are breathed on dirt. That's what we are. We are. We are what happens when God breath hit. So, so if, we're, if we're breathed on dirt, what does that make us? It makes us inspired dirt. And, and as long as we're breathing with God's breath holding us together, what are we? We're inspired dirt. But as soon as we quit breathing, what do we become? Normal dirt. So if we are inspired dirt, what does that make us? It makes us holy dirt. And if we're holy dirt, what does that make us? It makes us holy dirt ground. Sometimes we're looking for the next piece of holy ground, but we're looking too far because you are the holy ground. Well, is the Bible inspired? You better believe it is. Are you inspired? Yes, you are. One writer said it this way, let your life be the epistle for all to read. So before there was ever a Bible to talk about, and before there was definitely ever the technology to reproduce the Bible, a guy named Paul said the hope for the world is not putting Bibles everywhere as if people know what to do with that. The hope for the world is followers of Jesus living an inspired life. This is what we are talking about. And so first, is the Bible inspired? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It, 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 does that mean God wrote it? No. Because then the question is, which part? The kill animals part or the don't worry about killing animals part? <laughs> which part did God actually write? And when did God change his mind? And what the heck's going on here? You know? 
Um, it, God didn't write it, nor did God dictate it. What, what happened? Somebody wrote something down. God was like, that needs life. I'm going to breathe on it. I'm going to give that life. So in the Bible, you find inspiration. You find things that were, what is inspiration? Inspiration is when you find things that were written down that God gave life by breathing on it. And is the whole thing inspired? Yes, it is. Does Shane Willard think the whole thing's inspired? Yes, he does. Do you think the whole thing's inspired? Yes, you do. <laughs> Whether you're thinking about it now or not, you do, you do, you do. Does your pastor? Yes, yes. But you also find complexity. You, you find, well, I, people tickle me when they go, the Bible's very clear. No, often not. <laughs> uh, often, often it's very complex. Or worse, people go, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Yes, it does. <laughs> and it should. Because the Bible's not one book. The Bible's 40 books. No, sorry, the Bible's 66 books written by 40 people. I was testing you. The Bible, <laughs> the Bible's 66 books written by 40 people over a 1,500-year period of time. If, if 40 different people didn't have one difference of opinion, that would be called collusion. It, it would, you, do you really want to make a case that Moses' view of atonement was the same as the writer of Hebrews' view of atonement? I don't think so, nor should it be. Or let's even be more simple than that. Is the Bible for or against marriage? <laughs> Depends on who you read. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Rock. Paul says, he who marries does not sin, but he signed up for a life of pain. What's the Bible say about marriage? Depends. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it a lot. Paul's like, please make it your last decision ever. <laughs> what did Jesus say about marriage? Jesus said, and I'm quoting, don't worry about marriage. It's not in heaven anyway. So if marriage isn't in heaven, where would it be? <laughs> and if you're thinking, Oh, no, Shane, surely you're joking. Like, do that thing you do. What are we missing there? I want to see my schnookums in heaven. If, if that's your thought, you probably have a really good marriage. But, but if, if, if I quoted Jesus by saying, don't worry about marriage, it's not in heaven, and underneath your breath, you just went, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> a do-over. Last thing I want to do is live with you for 60 years and die, and there you are again. Oh, no. If that's, if, if, if that's you, you probably need to work on your marriage. All right, so, so the Bible's very complex. Here's, I just compiled a list. There, there's more. I, I just compiled a list off the top of my head of things you find in the Bible that are just complex. Um, like sometimes you find God speaking. Sometimes he wrote stuff on stone. And by the way, those are the ones no one has a problem with. Don't kill each other. Really good idea. Yeah, it's really, really good. Don't, don't lie. Yeah, that's, that's going to help. Don't, don't steal. Then, yes. Don't sleep with other people's wives. That's a good plan, right? Like, it's, these are, these are sometimes, sometimes God's speaking. Sometimes you do find God speaking. A lot of red letter stuff in there. It's good. It's really good. So sometimes you find people thinking God's speaking when he's not. You find that in there, too. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, um, in, in one of the books of Kings, it says, and God told David to take a census. God, God told David to take a census, right? But in the book of Chronicles, Speaking of the same census, it says, and Satan told David to take a census. What do you do with that? 
that the one time ever God and Satan sort of got on the same page and said, let's tell David something, you know? I mean, what's going on there? What's, what's happening there? Sometimes, sometimes and you got to understand historical art to understand it. It's very simple. But the books of Kings were written in, in the present tense, like a, a, a chronicler was walking around writing down everything the king said. So, so David goes, we're taking a census. And somebody says, why? God told me to, right? So the, the guy writing it down goes, God told David to take a census. No one's lying. David probably thought God wanted him to do that. The chronicler's just writing down what happened, right? But, but, but the book of Chronicles was written 300 years later with the help of hindsight, and that census led them all into captivity again. And you can't write down something that led this whole group of people into captivity. That was God's idea. So he says, Satan told David to take a census. It's all in there. It's all in there. So sometimes you find people curse when God is blessing. That's in there too. Genesis, first time that happened that I can find is Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, verse 8, and verse 17 says, God blessed all of Noah's sons. I'll say that God blessed all of Noah's sons. That sounds like everybody. God blessed everybody. God blessed all of Noah's sons. Genesis chapter 9, verse 24, it says, And Noah cursed Ham's line. So God blessed his sons. But Noah, in a drunk, hungover, irritated stupor, this guy got so drunk he didn't remember getting naked. Now, that's drunk. Look, there's levels to drunk. There's, there's relaxed, then there's buzzed, then there's drunk, then there's something called off your face, and then well past that is, how did I get naked, right? <laughs> Moses... Moses got, how did I get naked drunk? Now, if you've ever been, how did I get naked drunk? How was the next morning? It's terrible. It's called a hangover, right? And Moses lived in a world with no ibuprofen or Tylenol or BC powder. He just had to chew on a ginger root till he felt better, right? And in this drunk, hungover stupor, he curses people God bless. And here's the thing about it. It stuck. It stuck for generations and generations and generations. As a matter of fact, it's actually been very effective within the last hundred years. Do you know that that's the very passage that southern white pastors use to rationalize the horrendous mistreatment of African Americans? Here was the logic. Ready? Here it was. God cursed Ham. It's in the Bible. Ham ended up in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is full of black people. All black people are cursed. You know what that's called? It's called Homer Simpson logic. First of all, <laughs> you're connecting dots that don't exist. Secondly, God never cursed Ham. God blessed Ham. It was a drunken, hungover Noah that cursed him. And that's in the text. But, you gotta, but, but if you start with the notion that God approves everything in the Bible, no. Sometimes, God, sometimes the Bible's telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible's just accurately recording something that happened. Um, sometimes people act with obedience. We love those stories. Those are great Sunday school flannel graph stories. They're great, right? Oh, David and Goliath, right? right? So sometimes, sometimes you find people act with heartbreaking disobedience. That's in there too. And I'm glad like, if the Bible only told the success stories, there'd be something wrong with it. 
because that's not your life, and that's not my life. My life is a mixture of failures and successes and wins and losses and confusion and doubts and moments of high belief and moments of I don't know. And that's the Bible, funnily enough, looks like all of us. And, and if, if, it, if it only told the wins without any of the losses, you'd know they, that you would know that they omitted them because that's not how life works. Sometimes the Bible tells you stories that if it were about you, you just wouldn't want them in there, right? It's like, shoot, I wouldn't have told that. I was the, like, God, if you're writing this, keep that one to yourself, man. Like, sometimes you have tragic atrocities like Sodom, Jephthah. I, um, I travel the world, and um, one of the things I get used to do all over the world is pastors put me in rooms with people under 30, and they go, all the problems you have with the Bible, ask that guy. Right, Because what could possibly go wrong? And, and here's the thing. Here's why this is so important. The generation that just turned 21 has never had a moment where they didn't have Google. Never. Never. And so all they do is they Google Bible errors, and a hundred of them come up. They Google, they, they, they Google Bible passages your mother hopes you never see, right? And so I know because I get asked about them. And I get asked things like, if God's a loving God, how come he approved of the forced anal rape of people in Sodom? And you're going, why would you think God approved of that? And their answer will be, it's in the Bible, right? It's like, wait a minute, as if God approved of all that stuff. Sometimes the Bible's telling you what God said. Sometimes the Bible's just accurately relaying a story that happened that helps explain how Israel journeyed to a certain place. And sometimes there's some horrible things in there. Sometimes it has God's behavioral plan. And sometimes that behavioral plan contradicts itself. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 26, verse 4. If a fool addresses you, don't even answer back. You'll lower your intelligence to his. Proverbs 26, verse 5, if a fool addresses you, answer bluntly to reveal his folly. <laughs> what am I meant to do? There's a proverb that says, if you answer your enemy softly, their wrath will turn from you. Is that true? Most of the time. But Jesus answered his enemy softly, and last time I checked, they killed him. Why? Because proverbs aren't promises. They're wisdom statements. Proverbs aren't commands. They're wisdom statements. It's different genre. Sometimes there's descriptions of events God was happy about. There's some great wins in there. But, but sometimes, so, sometimes there's descriptions of events that just happened. It's like, well, that was unfortunate, but that just happened. It's not like God approved of David's adultery of Bathsheba and murder of her husband. He didn't approve of that, but it's a record of what happened. So sometimes there's parables and fictional stories. Let me say that slow. Some of the Bible is fiction. Duh. Right? And here's the thing. Here's the thing with Western, particularly white people. Okay? Western white people struggle with the gap and the tension between true and literal. So, so Western European people, they struggle with if it's not literal, it's not true. And that's just not true at all. Sometimes the greatest truth on earth is, is best expressed in a fictional story or a parable 
If the original author intended it to be a fiction story, it is best to interpret it as a fiction story, right? You don't want, for instance, you don't want to interpret Song of Solomon literally. Was her nose really like a tower? Were her legs actually like cedar trees? Were her breasts really as big as the hills of Bashan? No! It's a poem, right? And ancient writers did this all the time. If the original author intended the story to be a fictional story to make a point, that is just as inspired. And I'll give you an example. Parable of the Prodigal Son, is it literal? Obviously not. Is it true? Yes. But is it literal? No. But is it true? Yes. Is it literal? No. But is it true? Yes. Literal and true don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. Sometimes metaphors are just as true as anything that's literal. Because sometimes, sometimes it's easier to speak of concrete things in literal terms. Sometimes it's easier to speak of concrete things in metaphorical terms. Like sometimes it's easier to say, my wife Jane, than it is to say, the apple of my eye. You can, you can refer to your wife in literal terms, here's Jane. Or you can refer to your wife in metaphorical terms, my better half the apple of my eye. No one would be looking for a piece of fruit in your eye. They would just know. Or, or you can have negative metaphors like the old ball and chain. Whatever the case may be, you could speak of concrete things with literal terms. You could speak of concrete things in metaphorical terms. Or you could speak of abstract things in literal terms. Or you could speak of abstract things in metaphorical terms. The, the book of Revelation is a great example of that. Like, please do not interpret the book of Revelation literally. It's apocalyptic literature. Otherwise, the, like the middle of the book talks about a great whore coming down on a horse. My God, I hope that's not literal. I mean, because quite frankly, there's nothing scarier than a whore on a horse. You imagine, <laughs> right? It's obviously a metaphor about Roman imperialism and the goddess Roma. Anyway, um, the, there's references to other tribal literature. That shouldn't surprise us. There was a great Cretan prophet named Epimenides. He's quoted three times in the New Testament. That doesn't make the New Testament less inspired. It's, it, it, it makes sense that if someone's writing something, that they would quote common literature of the day. The, the entire first 11 chapters of Genesis, versions of it can be found in the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Atherhazus, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was ancient Babylonian Sumerian scripture. And that doesn't make it less inspired. It actually makes it richer. It makes it bigger, not smaller. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, th there's authentic expressions of where people were at at the time it was written. Like, like um, I'll give you an example of this. Psalm 104. The Lord our God, he's the great creator. He put the earth in its place, and now the earth never moves. Is that literally true? No. Please don't think too hard about that. Is the earth stationary? No. The earth is moving in every possible way. It's turning. It's tilting. It's revolving. It's this. But, but there was this guy named Galileo, and, and that scripture, they used that scripture to torture him. And here's why. He showed up to the church and said, hey, guys, we can prove the earth is moving. They said, it's most definitely not. He said, I'm telling you, it is. They said, but the Bible says. He said, I'm trying to save you some bumps here. 
you're going to have to reinterpret that because the earth's moving. And they said, you'll recant that or you'll go to hell. He said, whatever, bro. I'm just telling you, <laughs> the, the earth's moving. You know? 1633, they condemned Galileo to hell. You know when they let him out? 1992. True. 1992, the descendants of Galileo approached the head of the church and said, listen, um, our, our ancestor has been in hell for 300-something years. And turns out, by, by the way, it turns out he was right. Um, uh, um, could, could, could you guys absolve him and let him out of hell? So they did, you know, which is comical in and of itself. Excuse me, can we have Galileo back, you know? And Galileo comes up out of hell all jacked up, you know? It's like, man, I'm glad y'all figured that out. It's, it's hot as hell down here. Um, <laughs> That's obviously genre confusion. I mean, when David wrote Psalm 104, he's not a scientist. He, he's he's a, a musician who's writing a poem of praise sitting on the side of a hill, totally in awe of creation, despite his lack of understanding of how it all works. That's inspiring. Um, it's just moving. Um, obviously, Paul's attitudes about marriage had to do with his preconceived notions about when Jesus was coming back. Um, Jesus, he thought Jesus was going to return in his lifetime, and turned out he missed that one. You know, and uh, if you thought Jesus was going to return in your lifetime, marriage would have to take a back seat. But you realize if everybody took Paul's advice, the world would end because we'd have no more kids. And it's just you, you got to consider these things. Um, you, you have people's observations. You know, the Bible records people's observations even if they're not true. You know, like the Bible says that Jesus is full of Beelzebub. Because people thought that. They said, oh, he's full of Beelzebub. They, they, they just put it in there. Why? Because it's part of the story. Well, one place it says Jesus was out of his mind. It, but it, it's, a, it's recording other people's observations. And it, because it's a part of the story, they just, they included it. They included it. Well, one of the things I find amazing is that the four gospels record the disciples' failures. That's weird, Hey. Like, the Gospels were written 40 years after Jesus, where the disciples were the leaders of this new movement, and the books that were supposed to be the propaganda to get people involved included the leaders' failures. Like, like who denied Jesus three times? Peter. Who wrote that down? Matthew. How did, he, how did Matthew know that? Was Matthew there? No, he had run. The only person that was there was Jesus and Peter. How did Matthew know Jesus was denied by Peter three times? Either Jesus louded him out or, or Peter told him. And Matthew's like, we're adding that. Uh -huh. if, 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 they're writing, if they're writing propaganda and marketing literature, they're the worst. They're the worst at it. There, there's different opinions for different authors. You find that in the Bible, too. Solomon is very for marriage. Paul's very not. Moses was very pro-sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews was very anti-sacrifice. What, what, what you find is this progressive movement of understanding. You don't find static references. So, so why, why is the Bible under attack? Well, let, let's talk about that. Why is the Bible under attack? In my, in my experience going around the world, I find all... Bible objections to fit into three categories so far, and here they are. Static appropriation, 
static appropriation, right? So genre confusion and lack of consideration of historical art. Now, let me take a second to explain all three of those. Static appropriation is speaking of the Bible as if God wrote it. Like, if God wrote it and God doesn't change, then that still applies now. And the problem is that works for doing others, you'd have them doing to you. It doesn't work so well if, for, if you need to beat your slave for laziness, right? It's, so static appropriation um, is a Bible ruiner. Um, now, 80% of the questions I get in these Q&As comes down to genre confusion. Genre confusion is interpreting a poem like it's science or interpreting history like it's law. Like if you, if, if you read a bit of the history books and you think, well, God approves of that for all time. No, that's just telling you what happens. Or, or, or reading laws if it's poetry. Or reading prophetic literature without considering prophetic literary devices. Or reading the Gospels as modern history instead of ancient history. Or reading Revelation literally. That's genre confusion. Genre confusion is interpreting one genre as if it's another genre. And you can't, you can't do that. The third one is lack of consideration of historical arc. That the arc of the story, the Bible is not static. The Bible's moving. Let, let me give you an example. Abraham. Abraham had this brilliant idea. Here was his idea. Ready? Here it was. Let's stop killing children and start killing animals instead. Now, without thinking too hard, I promise I'm not trying to trick you. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's a really good flipping idea, right? Now, is, is that inspired? Hey, let's stop killing children and start killing animals. Is that inspired? Yes. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is it the final word of God? No. The final word of God's the risen Christ. It's a person. But that was a giant leap in the right direction. Moses comes along and goes, let's stop killing infinite animals and start killing one animal per family per year. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's a really good idea. Is that inspired? You better believe that's inspired. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is it the final word of God? No. The final word of God is the risen Christ. Right? Then Micah comes along and goes, actually, don't worry about sacrificing at all. Just do justly, love, mercy, walk humbly with God. <laughs> oh, is that a good idea? Yes. Is that an inspired word? Yes. Is that a word from God? Yes. Is it the final word of God? No. Final word of God's the risen Christ. But you realize they killed Micah in his day for being unbiblical. J Jesus talks about it in Matthew 23. You who stoned the prophets. You know, all the prophets got killed in their day. Ezekiel said there was no such thing as generational curses. In Ezekiel 18, they killed him. Micah said, don't worry about sacrificing. Just do justly, love, mercy, welcome to God. They killed him too. But, but in Matthew 23, Jesus says, you who stoned the prophets. In other words, the ones you call prophets today are the ones you stoned yesterday. You're fixing to kill me because I'm ahead of my time. Anyway, just go ahead and do what you got to do. Right? It's, it's, it's that. There's an arc to Scripture. There's an arc to someone who thought you had to kill kids. And then they got a revelation from God that you could kill animals. And then they got a revelation, limited animals. Then they got a revelation, I ah, don't worry about that at all. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, you think you need to sacrifice? Fine. Let's just do one sacrifice for the whole world for all time. That is awesome. And some would call that good news, right? And then the New Testament actually said that Jesus didn't die simply at the cross. Jesus died before the foundation of the world. That the whole thing was sorted out before time began, but you wouldn't believe it without seeing it. But the cross showed you what had always been true. In other words, Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality about God. He just simply showed you what God was always like, which is so much better. It's so much better. So, so what are the solutions? Let, let's, let's talk about the solutions then. Are y'all bored? Nobody's bored? Oh, good, good, good. 
So the Bible's not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The Bible is the word of God, but it is not the final word of God. The final word of God is the risen Christ. It's a person. It's a person. Uh, next. The Bible is written by 40, 40 different people over approximately 1,000 years in different eras and genres. What the original author intended to communicate to the original audience should be heavily considered when interpreting Scripture. What did the original guy intend to communicate to the original audience? That's hermeneutics 101, right? N number three, we have to always consider historical arc before we draw conclusions about the Scripture in question. There's normally a story underneath the story that makes the story make more sense. And oftentimes it makes it better. Right, let me just give you a few examples of that. Like Deuteronomy 21, which we'll talk about in a second. What about the unknown God? Like Paul shows up in a city, and he's like, you got a bunch of idols, but there's one you haven't given a name to. Let's just call him Jesus and be done with it. Like, is Paul allowed to do that? Would you have him on your missions board? Like, what's going on there? And, and, and what about Bethesda? What about a pool that evidently God sends an angel to only heal one person, and everyone else goes home sick? What kind of God would do that? And what kind of, was there like a bookie in heaven going 20 to 180 on the guy? Trying to, what's going on there? And why are we okay with that? And why is that in there? And why is it only in one gospel? What's the story underneath that story? And what about dirty sponges? And what, and what about whitewashed tombs? And what is Jesus talking about there? And what about the gates of hell? And what, where was he standing when he said that? And how does knowing where he stood when he said that help us understand what was going on there? And what about stones crying out? That's just weird. Like, ah, right? Like, like if you quit praising that asphalt's going to cry. What? That's just weird. What's going on? And what about writing in the dirt? What was he writing? And why would you ever chop, a, chop off a man's ear? And was it legal to chop off a man's ear? And why did Peter chop off the guy's ear and no one arrested him even though the police were there? And how do we even know it's Peter when Matthew said it was a certain companion of Jesus? And Mark said it was one of Jesus' friends. And Luke said it was one of Jesus' disciples. Why do we just assume it's Peter? Is it because we know other things about Peter? Or is it because all the gospel writers tended to gang up on Peter? And what's happening? <laughs> What's happening there? Matthew said it was a certain companion of Jesus. Mark said it was one of Jesus' friends. Luke says it was one of Jesus' disciples. The reason we know it's Peter is because John said Peter did it. That's how we know, right? right? And what about let the dead bury the dead? And how insensitive can you be? A guy shows up and says, Jesus, can I follow you? Jesus says, sure. And he says, but I need to bury my dad first. And Jesus is like, let the dead bury the dead. Like how insensitive can you possibly be? What's going on there? What about sounding the trumpets? What did that even mean? And how does understanding first century Sadaka help us understand that? And why did the blind man start taking off his clothes? Isn't that weird? Have you ever had somebody just a little too excited to see you? And, and, and why 30 pieces of silver? Why not a big bag of silver? Why not a small bag of silver? Why not a bunch of silver? What does 30 pieces of silver in Leviticus have to do with how we interpret that? And what about fold face cloths and tombs? Why does it make a point to talk about um, piled down clothes, but folded face cloths. And what about Ananias and Sapphira? What's going on there? And why is God evidently still killing people in the New Testament for dishonesty? What's happening there? And what about the blessed Sidonite woman? And how did that almost get Jesus thrown off a cliff? What happened there? And what about the creation account? How do we explain how the same account appears in the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Atherasis, and the Epic of Gilgamesh? And how does understanding that and the differences between Moses' version and their version help us understand the difference between Jehovah and the Babylonian high god Marduk? And what about why, the, why do all the Gospels tell 
contradictory stories. Like, why does Matthew say Jesus cursed the fig tree and then walked in and turned over the tables, but Mark says he turned over the tables first and then went outside and cursed the fig tree? If God wrote it, he got very confused there. And why do the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles differ so much when speaking of the same event? What was going on there? Can God not just make up his mind? And why all the contradictory commands? And can God not just make up his mind? And what about turn the other cheek? And does that actually work? And how do we do with that? And how serious do we take what Jesus said. What about go the extra mile? And when Jesus said heaven, what did his hearers hear? And when Jesus said hell, what were they hearing? And what about rubbish dumps? And what about white robes and gold crowns? And how weird could you possibly make heaven? I, I, remember, I, I, remember my, I remember my Sunday school teacher telling us at seven, hey, boys and girls, one day you're going to get to go to heaven. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to get a white robe and a gold crown. And you're going to get to go to church all day, right? And I remember at seven being like, oh, no, where's hell, right? Like, how uncompelling can you possibly make heaven? And, and, and what about, and what does that have to do? And what does white robes and gold crowns, how does it help us understand the reign of Domitian and the role of the Domitian games in oppressing the 12 districts of the Roman Empire? How, do we, how, can, we, how, how, how can we gain that understanding? And what about rending the garments? And what about casting aside garments? And what about binding and loosing? What was going on there? And how does that even work? And what about let the dead bury the dead? That was so bad, I left that in there twice. And what about... What about good eyes and bad eyes? And what's going on there? And what about yokes? And what about shaking the dust off your feet? And how can a guy that tells us to forgive everybody before the sun goes down also tell us it's okay to shake dust off our feet? How does that even go together? And what about clean and unclean? And what about tassels on the garments? And what kind of fashion statement is that? And probably most importantly, what in the world did Moses see when he saw God's backside? I'd like to know that. And these are all, well, think about it, ma'am. I mean, if, if God hid Moses in the crevice of the rock with his hand, like if God's hand is big, God's butt would be like enormous. Right? I want to know all these things. And serious Bible students, serious Bible students, can search those things out. And there's a history, I can tell you, every single one of those examples, there's a history answer underneath all of them. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Whoever the smartest person in this room is about the Bible, whoever that is, they haven't even scratched one-tenth of one percent of the depth of things going on. We've got so much more to learn. Which, which leads me to this question. What's the deal with Job? What the heck's going on with him, you know? I do Q&As all over the world, and I've never heard a question that I was surprised by. The reason is, is all I did was go check Google, and, and surprise, surprise, their objections are hit number one through eight in Google. Except one. I was doing a Q&A with 1,500 people. Microphone there, microphone there, you know. This girl come up, probably 20. She said, hello, Pastor Shane. She said, I'm so glad you're here. You've really helped me a lot already. I said, thank you. She said, um, I grew up atheist. She said, both my parents are atheists. And um, she said, I'm not an atheist. Um, in my journey, I can't come to the conclusion that this all happened by accident and nothing's holding it together. 
She said, but I'm not a Christian either. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering what God might be like. And I'm like, okay. I said, I'm so glad you're here. And, and it's very brave for you to come up here. That, but, but I want you to know that I'm proud of you and everybody, like to journey from atheism to where you are. Yes, yeah. She said, she said, thank you. She said, could you help me though? She said, in searching out what the Christian God is like, she said, I find 80 scriptures where God promises to save us from our enemies, to protect us from our enemies. I said, right. She said, but then there's an entire book where the same God admits in writing that he let Satan kill a man's entire family. So here's my question. Is God trustworthy or random? And can a random God be trusted? And why do you trust a random God? And are you okay trusting a guy that says he'll protect you only to find out he, he, he allowed Satan to kill a man's entire family? And aren't you worried that he'll do that to your family? And how do you reconcile all that? Now, is that a good question or not so good question? That's a great flipping question, right? Now, of the three issues, which one is that obviously? Is, is genre confusion? So, so I said to her, I said, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And thank you for that. I said, my question to you is, is that is Job a history book? She was very educated, and she said, you know, I hadn't considered that. I said, well, let's talk about it, because it needs to be considered. In the Old Testament, was there a history section? She said, yes. I said, what books are in there? She paused. I wasn't sure if she knew, so I helped her, because I didn't want to embarrass her in any way. I said, well, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuels, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. She said, yeah. I said, right. I said, when you read the Old Testament, what section is Job in? She knew enough to do this. She said, it's in the poetry section. I said, right. What's that tell you? She went, it's a poem. It's a poem. I said, right. Job is a poem, not a history book. It's the first time in my whole life I ever considered anyone thought Job was a poem. I mean, it was a history book. I'd never, and here's why. When I was five and six, my Sunday school teacher taught us the books of the Bible. Do you remember being taught the books of the Bible by your Sunday school teacher? The, the thing my Sunday school teacher used was this big chart, and the books of the Bible were color-coded by genre. Right? Remember? You had the five books of the law, then you had the history books, then you had the poetry books, then you had the minor, pro the, I'm sorry, the major prophets, then the minor prophets, then the gospels, right, right? And, and, and remember in that chart, what section is Job in? It's in the poetry section. What's that tell you? It's a poem. How do we know Job's a poem? Because it's in the poetry section. <laughs> it starts, by the way, the book of Job starts with a council meeting of the gods. Does that sound like history to you? Right? There's this one scene in it where like Satan's coming and going out of heaven, you know, <laughs> So, so, so let, me, let, let me tell you the historical arc of Job, okay? So there's this guy named Job, and he's a real guy, a literal historical figure, and he lives in Christian lore, Jewish lore, and Muslim lore, by the way, okay? And he had a lot, and he lost everything, and then he got it back. That's his story. The poem you're reading in the Bible is a poem written based on that guy's life 
by slaves, Israelite slaves in Babylon. Now think about it. If you're an Israelite slave in Babylon, what have you lost? Everything. You've lost your wife, your children, your, your job, your position, your land, your health. You are Job. And these slaves were drawing inspiration from Job by trying to explain why suffering happens. In the conclusion of 47 chapters or whatever it is in Job, the conclusion of that whole thing is, is you cannot intellectualize suffering. To intellectualize suffering actually discredits the sufferer and the redemptive nature of suffering. You cannot intellectualize suffering. All you can do is suffering is keep your eyes and your trust on the one who's faithful and true, and one day it'll all be restored to you. And that is inspiring. Genre confusion. This girl said, can I ask you one more? <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> she held up a Bible. And she said, this is God's word, right? I said, yeah. She said, God wrote it, right? Never agree to that, by the way. I said, go on. She said, I need to read this. Um, and I'm just wondering why you're okay following a God who ever treated women like this. This is from Deuteronomy 21. It's word for word from the NIV. I haven't changed one word. And the best way for me to read this is in a southern accent. <laughs> it just makes it better. Now, before we read this, is Deuteronomy 21 inspired? Yes. Does Shane think it is? Yes. Do you? Okay. Watch this. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice amongst the captives a beautiful woman and you're attracted to her, you could just take her to be your wife. Bring her to your home. Have her shave her head. Trim her nails. Put aside the clothes she was wearing when she was captured. After she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she'll be your wife. That's called have sex. If you're not pleased with her, in other words, if she's not very good at it, just let her go wherever she wishes. You just must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you've already dishonored her. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Preach it, preacher. Shave those heads. Clip those nails. Make 13-year-old virgins marry warrior men they don't love because our God is love. But by the way, if you ask the head of ISIS, how are you okay making foreign girls marry your warriors? He doesn't use the Quran. It's not in there. He uses Deuteronomy 21. It's a static appropriated application of Deuteronomy 21. The idea is, is what this girl was asking. If God, was, if God wrote that, and God's okay with that then, and God doesn't change, then God would still be okay with that now. She said, Shane, can you please help me? This is why it's very important during election season that you don't put a bumper sticker on your car that says, vote and get back to the Bible. I know what you mean by that. What you actually mean is we need to get back to the way of life Jesus taught us to live. And that's fine. 
But when you just use this general, we need to get back to the Bible, which part? That one? Let me ask you ladies something. If the United States of America said we've had a revelation, we need to get back to the Bible, and they made that the law starting tomorrow, would life be better or worse for you? Far worse. So sometimes getting back to the Bible is the wrong direction. That's in there. The question is, why is it in there? Now, I want to equip you tonight with better questions, better answers, so that if your children, which, by the way, that's hit number three on horrible things in the Bible, if your children come home and say, Mom, Dad, why does the Bible say it's okay to take female virgin slaves, shave their head, clip their nails, and, and, and force them to marry us? We just can't buy them and sell them. Why, is the, why did God say that? I want us to give us a better answer for that. So let's walk through it. I'll, I'll walk through it slowly, okay? First, did God write Deuteronomy 21? Let's get this straight right. Let's get it right up front. Did God write it? No. No. Who, let's, who wrote that? M probably Moses. All right, so let's go with Moses. Moses wrote that. Now, did God inspire that? Yes. So the question isn't, well, let's ask another question. Is God, is God for allowing us to force 13-year-old girls to marry our warriors? We're all together on this? Like the, risen, the spirit of Christ in you would go, that's probably not right, right? So the question then is, why is that in the Bible? Why is God obviously approving of it there? And the answer is God never approved of it. God doesn't change. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what people thought God was, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The question isn't, is God like that? He's not like that. The question isn't, did God write that? He didn't. The question is, why did Moses write that? And more importantly, what about that was so good that God gave it life by inspiring it? And the answer is historical arc. Only women, can, only women can answer this question. If the world went back to that law tomorrow, is the world better or worse for women? Worse. But that's not how you read it. The question is, is did this passage make the world better or worse for women compared to the day before it was written? And the answer is quantum leap better. The great historian Karen Armstrong points this out. Thank goodness I read her book. She uses this passage as the example of the Bible having the most dynamic, progressive, gigantic leap forward for women's rights ever recorded in the history of the world. Karen Armstrong says that this is the most dynamic leap forward for women's rights ever recorded in the history of the world up to the time it was written. Here's why. In the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persians, all of those early ancient empires, all women were property. They weren't even considered people. When you had your period, your parents would use you as bartering tools to foreign warriors to buy political stuff, to buy protection, to buy warriors. And if you attacked another tribe and you just wanted one of those women, they were now your property and you could buy and sell them as slaves. So when Moses was writing the law, that's the genre here, the law for Israel, he's like, Israel's going to be different in the world. And here's the thing. If you, if you see a woman from a foreign tribe and you want to take her, you can't make her a slave. That's no longer going to happen. You have to marry her. You have to make her your wife with the same rights and privileges that the rest of your wives have. 
have. You cannot treat her as sub-Jew. She is now a Jew with the same rights and privileges the rest of your wives have. You can let her shave her head and clip her nails. By the way, that's a good thing because the context of this passage was mourning. And when ancient Jews mourn, they shaved their heads and clipped their nails. In other words, you got to let her be a Jew, act like a Jew, mourn like a Jew. She is now one of us. And if you become displeased with her, you can't turn the tables and buy and sell her as a slave. That is not happening in Israel because in Israel, women are people, not property. And when you're the first person in the history of the world to write a law for the land that, that declares women as people, not property, is that a good move or a bad move? That's a gigantic good move. Is that inspired? You better believe it is. Is that a word from God? Absolutely. Is it the final word of God on women's rights? Absolutely not. But it was one giant leap in the right direction, and that is inspiring. That's why it's in there. Uh, uh, I'm three minutes over time. Are you guys bored? Nobody's like, everybody okay? I'll show you this one, and then we'll take a break and then come back with Q&A. In one of the Q&As, these are all real questions that were asked to me. Somebody asked me, how are you okay following a God that endorses um, infanticide, um, uh, purposely killing children? And I honestly, I did not know what they were talking about. And they said, let me read it. This is um, word for word out of Psalm 137. Here it is. Oh, daughter Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed, so God is evidently blessing, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. She said, how could you possibly be okay with serving a God who not only endorses it, but promises to bless people who dash children against stones? Could you please explain? Now, let's walk through our questions. Is God for killing little children? We're all together on that. Good, 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 good. Did God write Psalm 137? No, he did not. Actually, no one knows who wrote Psalm 137. It's written by an anonymous priest from Jerusalem who was taking... All we know about the author of Psalm 137 is that he was a priest in Jerusalem who was taken captive under Nebuchadnezzar. Which means that's not all we know. <laughs> we know, because it's recorded in the books of Kings... That Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and took people captive. We also know the Babylonians were particularly crazy when it came to doing this. Here's what they would do. If you were between the ages of birth and eight, they killed you. Here's how they killed you. They held you by your feet and they bashed your head against the closest stone. If you were over the age of 30, they killed you because you were too old to be useful. If you were between the ages of 8 and 30 and you were a female, you were made available to be a sex slave to a platoon of soldiers. If you were between the ages of, of 8 and 30 and you were a priest, they kidnapped you and made you serve as a slave in the temple of Ishtar to make a public declaration that Ishtar was a more powerful god than your god. But they didn't want you having kids to have a generation rise up against them. So for most of the priests, they were held down... And four people held you down, and they would take two bricks, and they would crush your testicles. 
um, between two bricks to make you sterile. So if you're a priest who was taken captive under Nebuchadnezzar, what have you lost in one day? I don't want to overstate this or be gross, but, but I do, it, it needs to be said. You would have watched or known your wife was being gang raped to death. Any child under the age of eight, you would have known their heads would have been bashed against stones. Any child above the age of eight to 30, if, they, if she was a female, she's now a sex slave. If, if they're a male, they're now a slave to the Babylonian empire to build their buildings and things. It, you yourself, think about what you've lost. If you're a priest, where did you work? The temple. In 2 Kings 25, it says, And Nebuchadnezzar himself walked into the Holy of Holies, stole the furniture, and did not die. Anyone see a problem with that? In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says, If anyone walks into the Holy of Holies, what will happen to them? They die. But here's a foreign king walking into the Holy of Holies, stealing the furniture and not dying. Think about this. If, if, if you're a priest and you're in the testicle crushing line, right? You know, number 18, number 18, you're like, I'm number 32, shoot, right? If you're in the testicle crushing line and Nebuchadnezzar comes by and says, hey, did we go in there and get all the furniture yet? Somebody says, no, we left that for you. Well, I'm going in there. If you're the priest in the testicle crushing line, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's what you need to do, Neb. Hey, 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 hey. You need to go, hey, there's this big scary curtain that basically says keep out. Don't worry about that, bro. You're Neb. Listen, go all the way in there. Why? Because what would you be thinking? His head's going to roll off like an Indiana Jones in the lat, right? Only the penitent man will pass, right? And you're in the testicle crushing line, and Neb walks in there and steals the furniture and doesn't die. What have you lost in one day? You've lost your wife, your children, your job your temple, your family, your land, your home, and your testicles, and your faith in one day. And you get to Babylon, and you're being forced to serve as a slave in the temple of Ishtar. What do you do to cope with losing all that? Evidently, you write a poem. And the first part of this poem calls God out. He's like, where were you, dude? You were supposed to protect us, but you didn't. And here I am, all testicleless and everything. Here I am. You didn't show up. And then he switches gears and he says, you know what? I'm going to trust you anyway. But here's all I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to repay them for what you know they did to us. They bashed our children's heads against stones. May you bless the person who bashes their children's heads against stones. This is not a static record of what God is. This is an accurate record of what we would all hope God would be if that was our situation. This is a poem written by a man that lost everything asking God to repay. This is what you do with anger. You don't take revenge yourself. You leave it at the throne of the one whose throne is made of justice and righteousness and you let him do his thing. So, I bless you, my brothers and sisters. To be people who love the Bible again. Be people who know its breadth and width and depth and height. Get to know the person behind it. But the Bible's not a static record of what God is. The Bible's a dynamic, progressive, moving 
inspirational, accurate record of what people thought God was leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. May you know him. And may you remember that there's no end to the exploration of this great thing because the Bible is awesome. Let's take a five-minute break, everybody.